one of the training exercises, and I'm sure there's like a science to it, but essentially it's like a huge rubber band that they put around the driver's head and their trainer just pulls it and they've got to like not let their neck snap, I guess. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos. And I'm Jen Fricker. Welcome to Lived It, the podcast where we speak to everyday Aussies and Kiwis who didn't just watch the show or movie everybody's banging on about. They lived it. That's right. In today's show, we're chatting about Formula One Drive to Survive Season 4. It's the latest installment of the global phenomenon that's just landed on Netflix. Formula One Drive to Survive is a docu-slash-reality series that goes behind the scenes and goes in detail on what it takes to be the greats in this sport. I didn't really know too much about Formula One beyond just like seeing headlines or just, you know, wandering around my everyday life and seeing a billboard with a really fast car on it. So it gives you real insight into how high end and how far you have to push yourself to work in this sport. It's pretty fascinating. And it's one of those shows you don't necessarily have to be a huge cars person to really be in. I know a lot of really passionate people who are obsessed with this show who never watched Formula One before they saw it. That's true. And look at us. We're talking about it and neither of us even drive. We couldn't be less car people than <laughs> possible. But before we find out why Formula One Drive to Survive is such a compelling watch, let's have a listen to the trailer. Formula One is brutal. It can get tough. It can get ugly. What a race! Amazing! You can be the hero today, but forgotten tomorrow. Everybody's different, but the best ones can step up. We're in this sport to win, and nobody's giving up. Yes! Teams are racing, not just for glory, but for hundreds of millions of dollars. Nice shoes, boy. The competition is so tough, you just have to be off a little bit to be off. Bottas in big, big trouble. There's so much pressure, we cannot relax. You can change the car. Still, if you don't do the right things, you will not be faster. Daniel Ricciardo's had a particularly poor start. Yeah, painful for everyone. I don't feel sympathy for him. Why would I? I mean, it's pretty full on with the the money, the prizes, the ego. It's a lot. It's crazy, right? But I think I've got a feeling there's something beyond like the champagne showers and multi-million dollar deals. There has to be this league of people willing to do whatever they can to keep up with it all. While the drivers live their lives in this fantasy, fast lane world, there's this group of journos that have to scrape by in the bus lane to get what they need to get from the F1. And as you might know by now, Lived It is a podcast where we hear from real Aussies and Kiwis about moments from their own lives that feel like they're plucked straight from a Netflix plot. And joining us today on Lived It is Michael Lamonato, an Aussie journalist who has followed F1 all around the world. Yeah, Michael's gone to some insane lengths to keep up with this high-flying sport on a battler's budget. Michael's got a great history of reporting on Formula One for magazines, the ABC, online, and he's also a great podcaster, just like the two of us. So it is such a joy for us to have Michael on the podcast today to give us some kind of an insight into what the world of Formula One is actually like for someone sitting just behind that safety barrier looking in. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, it's great to be here. One thing I find like so fascinating about getting into the world of Formula One is just how much money needs to go into it to make it work because they have to develop new technologies, they have to employ so many people per team. But then beyond that, there's like this level of glitz and glamour where 
you know, champagne showers and stuff like that. <laughs> Does that feel like a completely new world for you to go into? Or does it? What does it feel like? Yeah, it, it is really quite dramatically different because there is certainly that level. I mean, if you're racing for a top team, and you know, this year they brought in a, a cost cap to reduce their spending to only two hundred million dollars, as opposed oh to gosh. the half a bill they were spending. Thoughts and prayers to all these teams. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a hard time, these cost cap times. <laughs> but when, like, if you're not, you know, at that top level of being a driver or in the team, you know, it's surprisingly mundane. Or if you're a freelancer, for example, I've, I've lived my life as a freelancer. It's hard. It's no, there's no, I don't want to say it's hard. Don't feel sorry for me. It's fun. But it's, <laughs> it's much cheaper than yeah. what you would be seeing on the television. It's essentially a life of trying to save money rather than find new ways to spend it. It's wow. not even, yeah, it's not remotely, you know, you see them staying at the Hilton, they get their hire cars or Ferraris, that's not, <laughs> that's not normal life. So Michael, what attracts you to Formula One? Obviously from the sporting aspect, it is a competition and competition is always really interesting, but it's sort of unique or motorsport, I should say in particular is unique among other sports because you have that mechanical element and you also have a team element. You know, people love to talk about the drivers. It's a big part of... The, the growth in the sport's popularity, obviously, with Drive to Survive has been revealing the drivers behind the helmets. But there are literally hundreds of people that put the cars together, that run the cars on track for that one driver to take probably 99% of the glory if they manage to win with the car. But there are so many elements that go into Formula One to make a successful weekend, so many more than you even see on the television. And that's what I find really interesting is that really for everything to work, it requires all of these little pieces, hundreds of little pieces to come together seamlessly. You'd never be able to do it if you didn't really, really know what you were doing. And that for me has always really been fascinating because there are so many ways it can go wrong and only one or two that can go right. I think that idea of like the precision, like everything needs to be supremely precise yeah. for everything to work out to the best possible outcome. I feel like this immense stress watching it. Do you feel <laughs> that when you're there? Like, is that a, a powerful emotion? Like like trapping you in there when you're near the track and you know cars are going past you at hundreds of kilometers an hour you don't just hear it you feel it and oh, all Lord. of a sudden you're like i can't imagine going that fast like it's just <laughs> it does really break your mind sometimes when you see a car tip into a corner hard on the brakes because they really are you know it's very easy to dismiss car racing as being like well they're just sitting down and like i drive to work and that's not that hard i could do mm. that but we don't even do that well, yeah, no, no one does that anymore. So I guess that makes it more remarkable, doesn't it, Motorsport? These people are leaving their houses for more than an hour a day <laughs> to go to work. Incredible. But the forces involved are so mind-bending that, I mean, you just need to look at a driver train, right? Some of the stuff they do to training is immense and you mm. realise that you just can't do it when you buy the train. What, what are some of the stuff that they do to train? There are some great videos. One that always frightens me is because it's all about the neck. Like it's core muscle, but in particular the neck because of the mm. G-forces involved. You know, it's oh, immense wow. G-forces. One of the training exercises, and I'm sure there's like a science to it, presumably, medical science probably, but essentially it's like a huge rubber band that they put around the driver's head and their trainer just pulls it. And they've got to like not let their neck snap, I guess. And that's the neck training for that. And it's one of the things you often see them posting it before a race. I guess that gets them excited for a race. I don't know. But it's really part, it's one of the core parts that they've got to train. And to me, it's just like this. You wouldn't be allowed to do this in real life. Surely it's dangerous. This makes sense. And again, me wildly editorializing, but Daniel <laughs> Ricciardo 
does have a quite prominent neck. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It's huge. There was a year when the cars got faster and their necks all increased like several wow. centimetres. They could be rugby players probably. Right. Far So out. if you want like a thin, dainty neck, then you don't get into motorsport. No way. God, you could snap away. You would. You, you'd be all over for you. Giraffes? Decapitated. (laughs) (laughs) Turkeys, no hope at getting all the way to the top. Yeah, sorry, honey, this ain't the sport for you. But a badger, the animal with the thickest neck I could think of, absolutely could destroy the circuit. Hey, you might be onto something. And this is why we brought you on today, Michael, is to rate... Go through the animal kingdom and see which ones would be the best drivers. What is the fastest... Yeah, fastest animal in a car. Yeah. I like that as a spin-off. <laughs> what was the most surreal moment you've had so far as an F1 journalist being surrounded by that kind of wealth? And then, you know, we've worked with media. We understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much spot on. Look, I mean, there are many surreal moments, but one that I always remember, it's one of my first years really traveling to follow Formula One. I was at the Japanese Grand Prix. Uh, Japanese and most circuits are often you know unless they're really in the city they're, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere as much as you can for an island mm. as populated as Japan I guess but you know it's it's sort of an hour away from Nagoya which is a couple of hours away from Tokyo and it's in sort of this little town and we were staying in a town called Yokaichi it's really hard to find hotels around Grand Prix circuits because obviously there's all the fans and then all of the teams and stuff inevitably have to stay there was one room left because we were booking kind of late. It's about 10 stops down the line from the track. So it was kind of close, maybe half an hour. But there was only one room and there were four of us freelancers who needed this room because we travel together to try and save costs, right? Like we're not, it's not uh, unusual for us to, to share rooms or to share hotels or that kind of thing. But four into one was, was probably the most extreme it's been. If anyone's ever stayed in any Japanese hotel, you know, they're, they're small. They're pretty crammed. Really small. Mm-hmm. And we had to, we had no choice. Like we'd booked in, we'd, we'd flown there. We're ready. We need a room for four people. So knowing that we had to get them all in, we sort of waited till quite late to check in. Sort of the final hour when we figured that, you know, the, the late night person would be there, maybe not being too attentive. And the first mm-hmm. person checked in and he sort of went up to the room and he waited kind of 20 minutes. And then he had a meeting with the second person. He's like, oh, we've just got to come up. And we tried to make sure the bags we were carrying were kind of being wheeled behind the couches in the lobby to make sure no one would see. So he went up there for 20 minutes. My God. Were you guys talking about the plan on the way in? Because it sounds very methodical. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And so we did that for the next couple of people. And of course, there's only one bed in a one-person room. So we'd mm-hmm. all packed uh, inflatable mattresses that we all had no to stay way. in and like sort of just arranged. Someone was half in a half in the bathroom, if you can imagine that, the bed going into the bathroom. And so every morning we had to deflate them because we weren't meant to be (laughs) staying there. And two of us would bring the bags to the track as well to make sure it... When the housekeeper came in, they weren't like, this person, there's no way they needed four bags to stay here. (laughs) So we're doing this every day. And then on the final day, and this was sort of the big story of the weekend, there was a typhoon in Japan, as tends to happen at that time of year. I don't know why they always run the race in typhoon season, but they do. doesn't seem like uh, those tyres can really take too yeah. much rain pelting down on them. Well, yeah, exactly. Or the wind or any of the sort of other detrimental impacts of a typhoon. Well, that's again, that's why they need the strong necks, you know, stay upright in a typhoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, have you ever seen a giraffe survive a typhoon? No. Personally, me never. No. It would be problematic. No, and I've been looking. (laughs) I've been searching for a a giraffe that will survive a typhoon, but I've had no luck. I got banned from the zoo for bringing little fans (laughs) to the giraffe enclosure. (laughs) You brought one of the rubber bands trying to, yeah. yeah. didn't like it. No good. No, they wouldn't. But the biggest concern for this typhoon, I remember, was just that 
you know, if something goes wrong, they're going to figure out that there are four people in this one room. Like they're gonna, you're gonna line up. Probably not outside in the typhoon, I guess, but downstairs in like a schoolyard emergency configuration. They can be like, there are too many people in this yeah. room, and we yeah. would upset the super polite <laughs> Japanese people. That was sort of my biggest concern as I was lying there, like that night, and you know, there was wind mm-hmm. outside in the rain. And I was like, this is how we're gonna get undone. Like the world doesn't want us to stay yeah. here. And the worst part, I remember, I was actually doing radio crosses that mm. night in Australia. Like Japan's a couple of hours ahead. And so I was waking up at 3 a.m. and then doing this phone call. And they'd be saying, oh, we can't get to you for another hour. And then I'd go to bed for 50 minutes, hear the rain and the wind be concerned. They'd do it another hour later and be like, oh, no, we can't get to you. So I was awake and asleep oh, all night gosh. just thinking about... Why were we doing this? Like, what was the point? Well, was it worth it? At least you could float away on your air mattress, you know? That's that's it. It's a flotation device. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be good if there were a flood. I'd probably be able to float out of the entire <laughs> situation, I guess. So, in that sense, I was very prepared. I felt safe. <laughs> so, did the hotel ever work out? You guys were all staying there? Or did you kind of get away with it? I suspect that they probably knew but didn't want to say anything. Because there's no way in retrospect, wow. like... There's no way they wouldn't have noticed there were four people, you know, worth of mess in the room and that kind of stuff. Because it sounds very methodical, but I feel like we wouldn't have done that good a job. And, you know, what else are they doing but looking at four people they don't remember checking in, walking up to the room every night? But, I mean, we got to, I mean, look, they're very polite at the end of the day. And, you know, we paid for the room, Mm. so what more do they want? That sounds like the absolute kindest option to just go like this. Four yeah. extremely desperate guys. Yeah. They've brought their own bedding. That guy's worn the same clothes every day. We're not going to call <laughs> him up on this. You should have at least been swapping clothes. Yeah. It looks like there's just one guy coming in and out. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you guys all brought air mattresses, surely you could just buy the same outfits. Yeah, or yeah. could have like thrown them down from the balcony and someone could have got changed into those clothes and then maybe they wouldn't have noticed they didn't come back down. I don't know. Yeah. So did the race go ahead in the end? The race did go ahead. It got red flagged in the end because there was too much typhoon around, which you could have imagined. The incredible thing, though, because, I mean, it does happen all the time in Japan, right, these typhoons. There was all this mess and kind of stuff. But you'd walk out the next morning and after two hours, you would not know that anything happens in Japan. And we were, like, asking people, like, where's all the, you know, we know stuff was coming out of trees, like trees were collapsing. They're like, yeah. We cleaned it up. Like, it's that's mm. it. After two hours, everything was so normal there. As we've kind of said before, our introduction into the world of Formula One was through F1 Drive to Survive. And a lot of the show follows those kind of personal storylines, struggles, competition, the money obviously involved with the sport. How do F1 drivers and their teams kind of compare to other sports? There are definitely different levels and it does more or less correspond with how successful they are, like the, which inevitably means they've got more money than somebody else. Mm. And that just does something to the brain, I think, doesn't it? Sometimes when you have a lot of money, it does change people. So you do get the majority of people in Formula 1 are pretty normal because like we were saying, the majority of people, for them, it's sort of like a normal job. Yes, they're traveling the world, but it's still mm. just engineering job, doing whatever it is that they do in particular. The rookie drivers, let's say, the guys haven't been around that long, are inevitably very earnest because they they want to make a good impression. And the further up you get, the more guarded the people are, the less willing they are to talk to the ordinary person. You do get some very good drivers. Like Daniel Ricciardo is the stereotype, but he is very genuine. What you see on the show, and inevitably you see a lot of him because the camera does seem to love Daniel Ricciardo and his massive neck, uh, is what he's like (laughs) in real life. Not only the personality, but the size of the neck. That's all legitimate, but you do get some... 
some really unusual characters. I, I remember a story, I think it was in it was in a hotel in Malaysia. It's a former world champion, but we're in a lift and sort of we went over to press, you know, whatever floor he was going to, and out of his jacket fell a whole bunch of those little butter sachets that he wanted to take to his room, sorry. Oh yeah. Oh, from like the buffet. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like you know, little ones you gotta unwrap and inevitably he makes a mess. He was taking like a whole heap of them in his jacket, like clearly stowed in his jacket. Hell yeah. Oh and we gosh. all had to stand in the lift mm. while he sort of picked them up one by one. <laughs> and I've always wondered why <laughs> he wanted to take so many with him to his room. Sorry. Wow. So like what kind of money are these drivers? <laughs> making oh he'd have been earning heaps like he'd be on heaps <laughs> right and then he's not a, not know, a not a little enough to be stealing butter from a hotel god was it good butter i mean he must have loved it maybe he maybe at home he's lactose intolerant he's not allowed to have it and he was just sort of like in his downtime was eating these butters because That's, he's missed the taste i love that it's very humanizing oh, wow. for these insane millionaires <laughs> <laughs> Who, can, who hasn't stolen the butter from a butter? Exactly. Yeah. Like from a oh, if there's a buffet breakfast or wherever, you better believe half the buffet's happening <laughs> in my hotel room afterwards. <laughs> At least go for the jam, though, not yeah. the butter. Oh, I'm going full muffins yeah. in the pockets, <laughs> some bacon rashes in the back pockets. <laughs> so on Drive to Survive, obviously, there's a lot of talk about being the winner, coming first place. Uh, and winning prizes. What's the first prize for the winner of the F1? Well, truthfully, there is no prize money for winning a race. Drivers just win and then they go home. But they do get, obviously, enormous salaries, most of them. And depending on the team, Red Bull Racing, for example, is renowned for having, I mean, I'm going to use small in inverted quotes, small salaries, but with massive win bonuses. So teams can pay win bonuses, whatever they want in per their contract. But for winning races, there's nothing. So when they're sort of out they're racing for position it's never for money it's really just for beating someone else the satisfaction of winning which kind of sounds boring and that it's a stereotypical narrative line but it is the satisfaction of winning oh my gosh um michael thanks so much for chatting to us yeah thanks for joining us on the show oh thanks it was my pleasure formula one drive to survive as michael was saying does give us a really good insight into who the actual people are behind this multi-million a billion dollar business you know and I guess for me that's why I like it I'm not a massive motorsports fan I'm aware of it but I wouldn't say I could name any Formula One drivers before this show and I do like just how you really get this sense of personalities and those huge crews that are behind them and, and how that whole like interplay works I think this does what I want most from documentaries, which is to shed light onto something that I don't know anything about, to give me kind of at some kind of insight into a subculture and on an introductory level, but then go a little bit deeper. And what I got so much from Drive to Survive that I found really satisfying and really interesting is something that Michael touched on, which is that idea of precision, the idea of a team coming together to go against the odds of everything that could go wrong will not go wrong. And in that very first episode, in the very first season of Drive to Survive, there's this moment that like struck me to how much work needs to go in where we've got this crazy fast speeding cars going around these tracks. There's two chances where the 
wheels just don't go on properly. And you just see all this work by all these people just come down to what would have been like less than a second and then to just strike back out again and go as fast as possible. And I I found that to be so so powerfully conveyed into like how stressful and how short a time that is it just struck me as like how much of a team sport this is because you think of the personalities you don't think about the teams behind them i think that this showed us such a good job in how much goes into making this sport work yeah i won't go into too much about season four just in case people haven't watched it yet obviously the season has concluded people know who came first i mean it's real life the spoilers for real life it's real life it's a (laughs) documentary what demarcates it for me from the other seasons is that there's kind of this sense of resignation in some of the teams as to how the whole thing works you know like for people to have hope that they can win despite the fact that they've participated in a a sport for years and years and have never won I think it's such like a gut punch emotionally that I really wasn't expecting from essentially a documentary about motorsports you know yeah something I really loved watching unfold over season four was the kind of I don't want to say drama but there was tension definitely between Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo they're both drivers on the same McLaren team And I just never realized that that was a thing, that even if you're on the same team, you still have a compulsion to outperform each other. I was like, that's like if you and I, Alexi, were like doing our podcast, but separately from each other but at the same time Mm. well that's how i get into this podcast every day jen i'm like i gotta get the freaking biggest gag out (laughs) it's so true jen i think that's like where so much of the the tension comes from is that it is competitive at every level like there's 10 teams there's 24 drivers or 22 drivers or something like that and every single one of them is competing with every single other one of them i never had an idea of how small this sport was Mm. i always thought it would be like oh there's national teams like the olympics or something like that but it is just like that you just see the top 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 tier of the world yeah it's like lewis hamilton has said before that the sport is constant warfare and i think in Formula One Drive to Survive, you really do get a sense of that. It, mm. But it's it's way more personal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's all we've got time for you here today on the podcast. Make sure you check out Michael's Formula One podcast, Box of Neutrals. Season four of Formula One Drive to Survive is on Netflix right now, and it is well worth a watch. Netflix does not condone the use of animals as drivers in the Formula One, even if it would be funny to put little suits on them. And don't you dare forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. Thank you to our executive producer, Priya Tahazade, and a huge thank you to producer Abby Lenton, who did such a great job finding Michael for this podcast. And finally, thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye. Ciao.